ask for your mercy as we approach your word. We realize there's so many things here that we don't understand or that we've vaguely understood, but we haven't applied it to our own life. And we'd ask that you take those things by your spirit, you'd apply it to each of our hearts, that individually we would hear your word and respond in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, as you may remember, as we've gone through the book of First Corinthians, one of the things that kept on coming up is the errors in thinking and judgment that the Corinthian believers were having, uh, holding themselves up as something special because I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos, oh, I follow Jesus, ha, 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 I got it. You know, uh, well, it was pride in the first place, and it was causing division, and it was sin. You know, all this in, in chapter 3, flat out told them that's carnal, that's carnality, that's your flesh talking, that is not what the Lord wants you to do. So here in chapter 4, he's going to get a little bit more pointed about it and point out some of the um, maybe more easy to miss uh, symptoms of that pride. So the title of today's sermon is The Humility of Discipleship. We talked about that a little bit this morning when we were talking in Daniel and Revelation that that there was a humility that needed to be there. So reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 16, <clears throat> Paul speaking to the believers there, the church at Corinth, he says, Now you, in King James it says ye, that's the plural you, ye are full, now ye are rich, ye have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were, appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye, you plural, are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst, and are naked, and are buffeted, and have no certain dwelling place. And we labor, <clears throat> working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. Paul was the one that led him to Christ. He's saying, I'm your, I'm your father in Christ. You're, you're my children in Christ. He says, for in Christ Jesus have I begotten you through the gospel. He's not supplanting God as their father. That's not the point. He's saying, I'm the one that led you to the Lord. <clears throat> and his conclusion in verse 16, he says, wherefore, I beseech you, that means I beg you, be followers of me. So we want to remember the context that we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and we've seen several things that were warnings to the church at Corinth. They're already displaying a great deal of carnality and divisiveness, division, uh, <clears throat> and pride. And Paul had already begun to admonish them regarding their sin. This is simply a more personal, more pointed address to the source of the error that it is pride. <clears throat> in verse 8, Paul addresses their self-confidence and their self, 
aggrandizement. He sounds almost as though he's mocking them. But he's at least highlighting their arrogance by comparing their attitudes to the attitudes of the apostles. He says, you are kings. Well, were they literally kings? No, but they were acting like they were, boy, they were really arrived. We're really something special. Why? Well, I belong to the Antioch Baptist Church. I'm a member of, no, 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 no. You know, no, that's not a matter of pride. I knew a guy years ago that was claiming that he was a member of the Hillside Church. Well, why was he saying that? Because he'd been stopped by the police for something, and he was insisting that he was an upstanding man. You know, he shouldn't be ticketed for breaking the law. Uh, but it was, at the time, I just thought, well, how, how ironic. Yeah, you've attended this church, and you've joined this church, but we haven't seen you in years at the, at the church that he was at at that time. And... And yet he was a member because he was on a roll someplace. That's one of the reasons we don't have membership role here. You're either functioning or you're not. <clears throat> he says, you're kings. And the Christians in Corinth had excessively high opinions of themselves. They felt that they were really something special. Possibly in their immaturity as new believers, they'd simply become elated in their new position in Christ and just felt that they'd really arrived. You know, thought we're the we're the real deal now. Well, that's understandable, but it's a mark of immaturity. And if you maintain it, it's simply carnality; it's sin. <clears throat> it led to their becoming inflated in their own minds. You see, they were self-satisfied and smug. It seems so. Paul is calling them out on it because of their pride. He's fairly gentle about it, as compared to some preachers since then. Uh, I don't know if any of you know who Jonathan Edwards was, but if you want to look up Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, wow, he's really rough. He's saying that they're, they're condemned, he's blasting them, he's saying you're more worthless than worms and you're hanging over the pit, you know, about to fall into an eternity in hell. Holy mackerel. Talk about preaching, you know, fire and damnation. Well... But it was effective at the time. The people he was speaking to apparently needed to hear that because there was a massive revival around that particular sermon. And I've read it, and I thought, well, I would never preach that sermon. That's just, I don't know, that's not how God leads me. And it, it wasn't what Paul was doing either. He was being really fairly gentle, even though it seems a little rough here. <clears throat> Paul's very gently chiding these baby believers and leading them to see themselves accurately we talked this morning in, in uh, under Daniel and Revelation, we talked about the, the point in James where we're told to see ourselves in the mirror of God's word, to see yourself the way God sees you and to respond accordingly. Don't just look and walk away and say, yep, that's me, uh, but to, to actually examine it and say, oh, that right there, that needs to change because that is how we're supposed to look at God's word. We're to see it as a mirror and we're to look at our face in it, not somebody else's. You don't turn the mirror sideways and go look at Rick or look at somebody else. You look at you. <clears throat> In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he does something similar to the believers there. And he says that, that no man think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but rather let him think soberly. Be, be realistic. Be correct about what's, what's true about you. Don't, it doesn't mean you don't not groveling on the floor and saying, oh, no good. But you're also 
not walking around smug and thinking you're better than everybody else because neither one of those extremes is true. He says, let him think soberly. <coughs> I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but sobriety is, the, is a choice that allows you to see reality. There used to be a, a campaign against drugs that said, uh, let's say drugs are for people who can't handle reality. Well, so somebody else got funny about it and said, reality is for people who can't handle drugs. Okay, but the fact is, sober eyes look and see reality the way it really is. You don't, you don't get discouraged over something more than you should, nor, nor do you get overconfident about something more than you should. <clears throat> so Paul went on to make three contrasting comparisons between the believers of Corinth and how they saw themselves and how they were behaving and the apostles who had actually introduced them to Christ in the first place. The three contrasts are as follows. He says, we are fools, but you are wise. I mean, under what circumstances would you call the apostles fools? Well, to the world, they seem to be fools. I mean, look at Paul. He, he got, they beat the snot out of him at one city, so he went right down to the next city and started preaching again. Didn't even wait to heal up from the first time. In the world's eyes, well, that's really foolish. No, from Jesus' eyes, he was being obedient. From the world's perspective, he says, we are fools, but you are wise. That ought to be a red flag right there, if the world thinks you're wise. <clears throat> the next thing he said, we are weak, but you, plural, are strong. We are despised, but you are honorable. This is the way the world was seeing them. <clears throat> and even today, the church at large has attempted to make itself attractive or relevant to the world. That's not what we were sent to do. We were sent to take the gospel of Christ to the world, not to make yourself relevant to the world or to make yourself attractive to the world. Down through the ages, the church has tried to do that. We've tried to look wise and strong and honorable to the world, which is exactly what he accused the Corinthian believers of doing. In a limited sense, that's what was happening there, but we've done it worse. I don't mean we per personally, but as the modern church starting, oh my goodness, a thousand years ago, more, the church has tried to look wise and strong and honorable to the world. The organized churches of every stripe have built huge buildings with amazing architecture. You know, people will fly into cities in France and England and Italy to look at the cathedrals that have been built, and some in Russia too, and and they're really, really impressed with them. The, the disciples were impressed with the temple, and they said, look at these stones, and Jesus said, not a single one of them is going to be left standing one on another, and that's literally what happened when Antiochus Epiphanes swept in, excuse me, not that was earlier, uh, Titus, the Roman General Titus swept in and tore the Trent temple down. Not one stone was left on another. And I'm told that it was because they found that there was gold inlaid between the stones. And once they discovered that, they will then tip them all over and strip out the gold. Okay, not one stone was left on another. Exactly what Jesus said. <clears throat> so he addressed that in their hearts, that they were impressed with the stones. And he says, don't be impressed with that. It's all coming down. They've tried to attract rich parishioners. They want to get the rich and the famous to come to their church. 
Why? Because it makes you look wise and strong and honorable to the world. <coughs> and the long-run effect, effect is that they start turning away people who are not rich and famous. I've heard of people being turned away at a church door because they weren't dressed properly. You go home and get a bath and get dressed properly, then you come back. They're not coming back. You just turned away somebody that was hungry, and they're never coming back. And I don't blame them. I wouldn't either. I've known people that got turned away that way. James warns against that in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He says, if you're turning away the poor people, or even just treating them differently because they're poor, then you're in sin. That's what he says. You're judges of evil intent, <coughs> or evil motives. In some past ages, the so-called church, and I hesitate to even call it a church. They called themselves the church, but uh, looking back, I realized these were not followers of Christ, period. Uh, but they actually took on military status. They had standing armies that they would send to back up the nations that they approved against nations that they didn't approve. Classic example was the Spanish Armada uh, in the 1500s. I don't remember the exact date. Uh, that was specifically sent to conquer England and force them back into Catholicism after they had turned away from Catholicism. Uh, and the Pope had promised the King of England that if that armada, if that sailing group of, I think it was 180 big ships, powerful army, na navy, but full of soldiers and stuff, uh, heavy guns, if they made landfall, that he would send troops to join them in the invasion of England. Well, they never made landfall. Uh, you can read the story. It's fascinating. First, they hit a storm on the way there, which sank a bunch of them. Second, they had pro improperly provisioned their ships so that the food was rotting and people were getting sick and dying aboard. Uh, then they got in to the English Channel. Well, the, the English fig had figured out they were on their way. And they sent small ships with smaller guns, but setting things on fire and stuff like that, and just swarming them like, like yellow jackets. And they never made landfall. They went the entire length of the English Channel, went around England on the other side, hit another storm coming back, and only about half of those ships ever made it back to Spain. They weren't as invincible as they thought. Invincible means unbeatable. <coughs> Crusades were a similar travesty. See, each of these things that sounded like the church sending somebody to do some warlike thing. They weren't the church. There were people who claimed the status of the church, but they weren't following God at all. God never approved of any of these behaviors. And that powerful church at that time extorted money from the poor to fill the treasuries of their, of their cathedrals, and then they tortured and killed anyone who dis disagreed with them. In no case did that kind of behavior honor the Lord, and in no case did he approve of it at all. In fact, in many cases, it was his people, specifically the Christians, that were being imprisoned and tortured and killed. Anyone who simply believed Jesus for their salvation and refused to follow the Pope, in that particular case it was the Roman Catholic Church, was considered an enemy, and they imprisoned him and tortured him and killed him. And that's what they did. Now, they weren't the only ones that did that. The, some of the early Reformed churches did the same thing. The Puritans, when they came here, were still doing that. You see, it's all people that wanted to consider themselves wise and strong and honorable to the effect that they'd kill anybody that didn't believe the same way as they did. 
Now you find me a place where Jesus said to, con to condemn or kill or hurt in any way unbelievers. No. They're precious souls for whom he died. And we're supposed to be taking them the gospel. We're supposed to be reaching out to them with gentleness and love and feeding them on the bread of life. Not condemning or hurting anyone. But that's what they were doing, you see. <clears throat> we remember the Inquisition as a horrible, cruel time in history. By the way, it wasn't just in Spain. We remember the Spanish Inquisition. There's been a lot of stories about that, but it was all over Europe. The Jesuits were the ones carrying it out. But See, it was carried out by people who declared themselves to be wise and honorable and strong and were searching out anybody that didn't believe quite the way they did and killing them. Other churches did the same thing. <coughs> And in Romans 1.22, Paul explains the root of the problem. He says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. In fact, he goes on to say they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the uncorruptible God for images made like unto corruptible men and of birds and of four-footed beasts and of creeping things. They traded in the real God for idols. And we've traded in, I don't mean we personally, but the, the American church, the modern Western church has in many cases turned in the actual word of God and the person of Christ for our organizations. I was in a church and we made a decision and we were just blasted. They said, that's not the Baptist way of doing things. And I said, well, where do I find the Baptist way? I, I know how to find the Jesus way of doing it. It's right here in this book. Where do I find the Baptist way of doing it? Well, you better look, you better look again. Because, I mean, I'd read through our church constitution. It didn't say anything about what we were doing. And they were angry because I wasn't doing things the way it ought to be done. Well, we had tried to make a decision from God's word, and they weren't happy. And, and that happens all the time. <clears throat> We've traded in the person of our love for a different motive. And we talked about that this morning in our study in Revelation in chapter 2. He's talking about the church at Ephesus. And he told all these wonderful things about that church that any church would be pleased to hear about themselves. But his bottom line was, you've left your first love. They'd forgotten the genuine motive of why they were doing all those things. It had become just, this is the way we do things here. Rather than, we do these things because Jesus said to. And we really, really want to please him. See, and, and that's what it can turn into. I've known of church, I know of church personally that Ann and I were in where the pastor spent six months teaching his other leaders about a particular issue in the Bible until they all completely understood and completely agreed that this is what the Bible says about this issue. He says, okay, now we, need, we have a decision to make because our church constitution says something different, which way you're going to go. And unanimously, instantly, they said, we're going to stick with the church constitution. They trashed God's word knowingly, deliberately, for their human traditions. And Jesus called the, the Jews out on that in Mark chapter 7, verse 9, saying, Full well, you set aside the commandments of God that you may keep your own traditions. They've forgotten their first love. They've forgotten who it is we're serving. They've forgotten why we're doing the things we do. Why are we trying to impress the world about us being wise or strong or honorable? Who cares what they think? Offer them the person of Christ. If they like him, then we're home free. If they don't, then then I'd rather be on the receiving end of their rejection, honestly. 
I don't need to be impressing them. <clears throat> if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29, just turn back a couple of pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised has God chosen and things which are not to bring to naught the things which are. Why? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now if you know that that's the calling of God, why in the world would you want to spend your life trying to impress other people that that's not who you are? That we're not foolish. That we're not base things and things despised. That we're not weak things. We're desperately trying to show the world that we are wise and strong and honorable when he says, that's not who I called you to be. I didn't want you to impress the world with your wise, strong, and honorable selves. But that's what the Corinthian believers were doing too. Even though in a more minor sense, as we've seen. <clears throat> but then we're going to ask, well then... But aren't we supposed to be wise? Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with doing what God says is wise. That's what real wisdom is, is doing what he says is wise. It's not showing off to the world how smart you are. There's nothing wrong with allowing God's strength to be your sufficiency. When he says, I'm uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, he says, I glory, therefore, in my weakness. Why? Because when I'm weak, then am I strong. Because that allows God to be strong through him. <clears throat> and of course, if we behave in a manner that God says is honorable, then the result is going to be mixed. The people that can't stand the smell of Jesus are going to despise you, right along with Jesus. Those who see Jesus, as their only hope, will be drawn to you right along with Jesus. They're going to want what you've got. And we've got people in this church that have been drawn here because we teach the Word of God and because they want what Jesus has for them. They want the change in their life that the Word of God brings. They want the salvation that he offers. We don't have it. God does. We're nothing more than beggars offering free food to other beggars. <clears throat> We're not wise and strong and honorable but if jesus is rejected then we should expect to be rejected right along with him and we're to accept that rejection with joy in hebrews chapter 13 verses 12 and 13 it says wherefore jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate <clears throat> let us go forth therefore unto him outside the camp bearing his reproach. We're called to join Jesus in the rejection that the world has given to him and continues to give to him. So then what was the problem in Corinth? It sounded like he was getting pretty rough on them. <clears throat> Several times in the Corinthian letters, Paul confronts the believers in Corinth with the fact that they were puffed up, that they were proud, that they were conceited. The Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. See, they're on a dangerous path, and he's warning them. 
Pride always has bad results. The Corinthian believers were not only torpedoing their own testimonies by their conceit, but they're also wrecking their walk with Jesus because God hates pride. God hates pride. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19 says, These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. It's real interesting to see what God says he hates. The first one is a proud look. But then it goes into things that we think are, well, that's nasty, but, you know, not a big deal. A lying tongue. Oh, turns out God hates that too. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. That's your thought life. That's not requiring outward works. God says he hates a heart that devises wicked imaginations. Feet that are swift and running to mischief. Verse 19, it says, A false witness that speaks lies, and he who sows discord amongst brethren. Gossip. God hates gossip. But the first one he named was pride. <clears throat> over and over, God condemns pride in both the Old Testament and the New. So Paul begins to offer the contrast between the apostles and the believers in Corinth. They're headed down a dangerous path, and he's warning them. So what about the apostles? What does Paul say that the lives of the apostles looked like? Well, he lists about a dozen things here, <clears throat> ten things here. Hunger? They didn't have enough to eat. Thirst? They didn't always have a source of water even where they were traveling. Nakedness? They didn't have adequate clothing for where God sent them. They were physically beaten, buffeted is what he says there, but it means somebody clobbering you. <clears throat> they were homeless. He says we had no certain dwelling place. We looked down on the homeless. Better not. God said the apostles were homeless. They labored, working with their own hands. They were self-supporting. They weren't holding out the hand and saying, pay me and I'll tell you all about Jesus. No, they were paying their own way by working. The leaders in this church have done that too. <clears throat> Being reviled, they blessed. When people were speaking ill of them, they blessed them. Being persecuted, they accepted and endured it. It says they suffered it. That means they allowed it. They didn't fight back. They didn't act like, you can't treat me that way. No, they, they, they accepted it. Being defamed, they entreated. They didn't say bad things back. They tried to talk to people and said, no, you know, we, that's not true. We didn't do that. But the, the result of all this says they were made as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things. They were considered by the world something you'd want to scrape off the bottom of your foot. You think about that. That's not how we want to feel. See, we want to feel fine and upstanding. We want to say, I'm a faithful member of the Antioch. You know, what? It's from a, sorry, it's from a song. You know, I'm a faithful follower of Brother John Birch. I'm a member of the Antioch Baptist Church. Yeah, it was C.W. McCall. Sorry. The, but that's how we want to see things. We want to hold ourselves up as being fine and upstanding and God says no you're not looking at those ten things he listed doesn't that sound like a great ministry yeah being hungry and thirsty and not having adequate clothing being homeless uh, having to work your way to go every place you go and being rejected by everybody you talk to that's just a poster for recruiting poster for stewardship isn't it and ministry and, and servanthood no it's not nobody wants those things but God says that's what his best servants endured in order to do the result 
that we see in Corinth, that they led those people to Christ, and there's a church established there. From a human perspective, it sounds like a great thing to avoid. But Jesus did not say that discipleship was going to be fun. <clears throat> he never said it would be a source of pride or position. When the 12 disciples were bickering about who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, meaning the millennial kingdom, he straightened them out by saying the greatest would be those who approached him as a child approaches without any self-will or arrogance. That's hard for us to do. But the next thing he says is that those who served would be the best rewarded. He says, let him who would be chief among you, let him be your slave. We don't like that either. The apostles seem to be last in line for honor in this world. As far as we know, the apostles, all of them, were eventually executed for the sake of Jesus. Maybe not John. The last time we actually see him in Scripture, he was on the island of Patmos in exile. But, you know, history is pretty loose about a lot of things there, and we don't know for sure. He may have been executed too. We think that Thomas was uh, martyred in in. India. Some of them we know for sure where they were killed and when, but most of them we, all we know is they somehow, somewhere, they were killed. <clears throat> but what's Paul's conclusion here? Notice he softens his admonition by saying he's bringing this rebuke in love as a father to his children. He says, I have no desire to shame you, but I'm, I'm warning you lovingly. He says, I'm warning you of the trap that you're walking into. He reminded them that he himself was the one that had led them to Christ, and his heart toward them was as a father toward his children. His conclusion then was, Wherefore, I beseech you, be you followers of me. Follow the example that we've given you. In effect, he said, Please follow our example. We apostles have led you to Christ, and we've taught you how to walk with him. Follow our example and drop all this heady nonsense of pride and personal glory. Later on, we're going to see they're bragging about who had the best gift. My goodness. Where'd you get it? It was a gift. Why? How can you brag about that? There's nothing special about that. God gave you a gift. Good. Use it. Use it for the blessing of the other people. Now, some of this may sound foreign to some of you, but if you think about it, I suspect that at least some of you have run into these attitudes before in churches or amongst believers. And you may have even fallen prey to them yourself, where you're thinking, ha, 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 I'm getting pretty good here. You know, and, and God's had to slap you down. In either case, we're warned that such self-satisfaction, such conceit in our super-spirituality is a guaranteed recipe for disaster, both as individuals and as a church. We need to learn and embrace the humility of discipleship. I'm going to close with that, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to have our communion together. Lord Jesus, I'd ask you to open our eyes to our true condition. Help us to change as you transform us through the renewing of our minds. Teach us to walk with you in true submission and humility rather than insisting on our own way. Make us able ministers of your truth in Jesus' name.